Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Anne, and with co-host Bill, I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assists in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. This week, we're focusing on Smart Recovery Australia, an organisation that provides evidence-based tools to help people manage addictive behaviours. I'd like to welcome Joseph Abdo to the Living Free Show this afternoon. Hi, Joseph. Yes. Good afternoon, Anne. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, Joseph is based in Sydney. He's a mental health therapist and he facilitates uh, smart recovery meetings. So um, tell us a little bit about smart recovery, Joseph, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, smart recovery. Uh, first of all, I'd like to address that smart stands for self management and recovery training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, its underlying philosophy is that you know people who do come to the meetings are their own expert, um, and really, it's a self managed program of behaviour change. Mm-hmm. Uh, my role in smart recovery is more of a facilitator, which sees me uh, week to week facilitating groups. Um, Usually it's in, a, in, in, in it's an open group, so people join, and usually we have uh, multiple people just um, hang on and just, I guess, do a couple of sessions um, and get something from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you uh, just take us in, into a smart recovery group and uh, show us where you're sitting, where everyone else is sitting, and, and what's happening from the beginning to the end and how long it goes for? Yeah, absolutely. So your average um, your stand group goes for 90 minutes long uh, in terms of format. So there's two types of formats we offer. The first format is through online medium. So it's like telehealth in a way or uh, it's online. So, um, you know, clients or, or participants have the option of going online to Smart Recovery website and subscribing or registering for one of the meetings that are held on daily uh, during the week uh, in remote access from their home. And usually... If they do the online route, it's usually me sitting um, from my own office with other participants around uh, the country or the state, um, and basically we run the session for 90 minutes long. Uh, if we take the face-to-face meeting, it's usually more local, and we have uh, the room set up in a circle, and basically it's um, we, we it's basically we hold space for one another inside that room. Um, in terms of the meeting itself, um, 90 minutes. Uh, we do a check-in, and we, we have an agenda list uh, to really talk about what everyone wants to talk about. It's really about the seven-day focus. So, you know, what have what has been happening for you over the last seven days? If it's, um, it's a current participant that we've known before, if it's someone new, we usually ask, you know, what has brought you to Smart Recovery? Um, and then, you know, with the agenda, we go into work time. So we do some behavior change work, and we do a checkout, which is more of a take-in and making sure that every person has something to walk away with that they can contribute towards their goals. 
Okay, so it starts with a check-in and ends with a check-in or check-out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, and how do you hold space? Are there protocols about not interrupting and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a great space because most of the people who attend are quite respectful. Um, and, you know, we, as a facilitator, we want to make sure that it's a safe space for everyone to engage and get support. At the end of the day, you know, it's really important to, um, you know, respect, just to show respect and oblige by the rules mm. um, in that sense. And so holding space is really about, you know, respect, being curious, and really, um, you know, making sure that, everyone in the room is quite comfortable in the sense that we don't want to get them to talk about things they don't want to talk about. It's whatever you open up in the conversation is what you open up with, um, you know, and we want to kind of make sure that it's moving along to something useful for you. Mm-hmm. So it's not, yeah. And are people commenting on each other's experience? Absolutely. That's the beauty about group one smart. Uh, the smart model is fantastic because it's really P-led. Uh, so people in the room all have different lived experiences and they bring such a rich and contextual knowledge to the space too, where, you know, me as a facilitator, I'm consistently learning from them. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a space where, you know, we, we're sharing different ideas of what might work because with addiction, you know, there's no right or wrong answer in the sense of how do you people manage with it. Mm. It's really about what has worked for you and what may work for you. And, you know, it's sort of that... Um, that implicit rule of, you know, take what you find useful and if you don't find something useful, that's okay. Yep. Um, and, and just back to, to you, Joseph, what, what's your professional background that led you into this work? Yeah, so I've, I've always loved working with people and I'm very curious. So I come from a clinical social work background and clinical social worker. Uh, I've, um, with the addiction space, I've always worked in addiction. I work with um, eating disorders, drug and alcohol, um, and various other, um, you know, mood disorders. And so addiction is such a complex and expanding field. Um, and so with Smart Recovery, it really did kind of speak to me in terms of this model because it's quite, um, it's a non-blaming way of understanding what might be going on for that individual. But also it's capacity building for people who do join the space um, because it really is empowering to see them you know, go through smart recovery meetings week to week and, you know, see those small shifts and those gains. And sometimes, you know, participants joining in the space might not really know that they're making gains. And so, you know, as a facilitator, you're you're kind of increasing behaviour change by pointing out, actually, you are doing this. That's great. And really, you know, developing that slow insight for them, Mm -hmm. which is fabulous. And I think what's more inspiring is that, you know, you start to see the group really supporting each other. Uh, and, you know, you know, they'll be such and such, you know, you might try this or they'll make suggestions. And, mm. yeah, it's a, it's a great collaborative space to be in. Mm. Um, and I imagine then that in the meetings there are people with different sorts of um, compulsive behaviours or trouble behaviours that are troubling them. Can you give us a sense of the range that you might see in a smart recovery group? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that's, that's the beauty about SMART because it's not so much on, you know, focused on one specific behaviour such as drinking or, you know, substance usage. It, it's more of a behaviour change program. So it's really about reflecting and being reflexive about someone's behaviour or your own behaviour. So what that means is, you know, we, we see a lot of people who, you know, have, you know, alcohol and substance complexities in their life and they come in, you know, so alcohol could be um, marijuana usage, could be ice usage, anything like that. You, you may also get, um, you know, we do get 
uh, behavioural addictions as well. So, you know, you've got your pathological gambling, uh, we get uh, sex addiction, we also get eating disorders um, as well. Uh, and so we, we get a plethora of different, um, present, you know, presenting problems that people come to the space. So there's no sort of one rule or blanket approach for everyone, so it's always different. And so really, this is why we say, like, we invite the person to speak to about the seven days and why they're there. And so we kind of really focus on that behaviour change component. Mm. So everybody's coming with, um, you know, different day-to-day issues, but they would identify with each other's struggles. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, addiction is quite interesting because even though you have different, um, you know, I guess even though you have different types of addictions and what we can be addicted to, essentially, uh, how the addiction manifests in a person's life might be similar. Uh, and, you know, you know, someone could have a drinking problem, for instance, and the other person could have a shopping problem. And, you know, they both experience interpersonal complexities or, you know, problems with their family relationships. Mm. And, and, you know, it's about really talking about that, um, you know, and kind of doing that sort of motivational interviewing, like, you know, trying to really mentalise, which is, you know, understanding how they're thinking about the, the problem and, and trying to work towards them to shifting and changing uh, what they do want to change. Mm. So, you know, addiction, as you say, is very complex. Um, and I think everybody knows it tends to cause or compound other problems of living that people have with relationships and work, etc. Um, I think you've talked a little bit about that complexity. Um, can you maybe go into a little bit more detail about what sort of trouble people get into because of their compulsive behaviours? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, you know, addiction manifests, again, in, in many, many different ways. And so how it impacts an individual and their community is also very different. So, you know, addiction doesn't just impact the person, but it impacts people around them. Uh, and, you know, depending on the addiction that someone has, it's going to look very different in a person's life, right? So, you know, a drinking problem looks very different from a shopping problem. Uh, a drinking problem might also coexist with a gambling problem. And so addiction or addictive behaviours can manifest and intersect with one another. So, you know, sometimes people drink and when they engage in drinking behaviour, you know, they might start to, you know, engage in gambling, right? Mm. Uh, and so when we talk about addiction and, and you know, the, the compounding factor of it, you know, it's not so much of a question of problems in living. It's more of a. It's more about you know what was there before the addiction, and then what has the addiction created after. You mm-hmm. know, so sometimes there are complexities in a person's life, such as dealing with difficult emotions, stressful events, um, that can make it very difficult for that person to kind of, um, you know, have some sort of coping mechanism or relief in a in a way that might be healthy. And that's not the individual's fault, but more so perhaps skills, the environment, could be many different factors. And so it's very interesting to kind of scaffold uh, how that might look like for an individual. Um, And it's always going to be different. Mm, Sure. Um, Now, just getting all theoretical, what what do you think addiction actually is? Uh, uh, There's a few questions in this. What is it? How does does smart recovery have a certain model? And does it matter what it is? I think, yeah, so addiction, again, it's such a it's such a broad field because once you think you know what it is, there's something that kind of, you know, comes in and, and just turns on its head and mm. it's like, oh, I get you thinking. Um, but that's the beauty about being in this space, that you're always consistently learning. Um, you know, addiction 
you know, it, it could be it's it's a it's a it's a social it's a social issue, it's a health issue, um, you know, it's more about it, it can be also a behavioural issue, right? Um, so it's there's many sort of manif- manif- um, manifestations of it. The thing is, though, you, you touched on something and you said, well, does it even matter? Matter? I think I think it does matter. I think the more questions we ask about addiction and and the way it unfolds and impacts people, I think the more the more closer we can kind of understand the nuances in it. And it's not so much saying like this is the answer of what I think addiction is, but more about understanding the multifaceted uh, complexity of it because the more broader we think in our approach, then, you know, support on the ground is going to look quite different and it can um, it, it can help a lot more people because mm. if you take different approaches. Because, you know, through my experience and what I've seen the people coming to SMART is that not one approach. One approach doesn't work for everyone, and so everyone has a very different way of interacting, engaging, and understanding the world around them. Uh, and so, you know, the more approaches we have to addiction, the better it is. Um, and you know, with smart, I think really um, the power in it is that you know it, it focuses on addiction from a behavioural perspective, which is really powerful because you're really getting the hard data of what is actually going on from the behaviour. And what that person is saying might not match. And so you're kind mm-hmm. of starting to create that sort of discrepancy of like, oh, my goodness, you know, you're saying you want to do this and this and this. However, you know, your behavior, you're doing this. And they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And so you're kind of creating those little pockets of moments of like insight. And slowly you start to see the person kind of transform a little bit over mm-hmm. time. Okay. Thank you very much, Joseph. We're going to go, go to a break now. Um, we're going to go to a Paul Kelly song the oldest story in the book and this is not about addiction but I when I chose the title I thought well maybe addiction is one of the oldest stories in the book but anyway here we go I'll put the song on and we'll be back with Joseph in a short while Tom and Harry were the best of friends They called themselves the Dharma Buns Lit out from their home and kin With a mandolin and a pair of thumbs Worked side by side all that summer Picking those grapes from the vine Took turns to cook the oldest story in the book. Enter Richard and his sister June, just before the harvest ends. Richard's guitar knows a whole lot of tunes. Harry starts picking on the mandolin 
Got a hit song on the radio. Richard calls up his sister June and says, "Do you want to come along to the show?" June scrapes the money together for a babysitter. Tom's working late. She's glad she's on her own, especially when Harry sings that song about the girl by the lake. The oldest story in the book. The oldest story in the book. The oldest story. Welcome back to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. And remember, we've still got our Radiothon on and we're getting up towards the 3CR target of 250,000, but we're not there yet. It's not too late to donate. If you would like to donate, uh, you can call 94198377. So you can donate right now if you want to. Uh, today we are talking with Joseph Abdo about recovering from addiction with the help of Smart Recovery Australia. Welcome back, Joseph. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anne. Now, getting right down to uh, tin tacks, four things that, that uh, Smart Recovery attempts to do is maintain the person's motivation to um, move away from the problem behaviour, cope with urges, solve problems in their lives and make their lifestyles more balanced. So I might ask you one at a time. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, what sort of things you do to help someone maintain motivation? Absolutely. And so, you know, early on in, you know, when that person is experiencing addiction, they're, they're you know, or when you're sitting in that smart recovery space in, in, in the meeting, you're really looking around and seeing who's there and you're kind of thinking about where are they at? You know, do they still need to change? Because some people that join the meeting don't sometimes realise or they're not really ready for, you know, ready for change. And so maintaining motivation is trying to build uh, in partnership that sort of that, that sort of change aspect and where they want to change. So 
some people, we call it the pre-contemplation stage where they don't realise there's a problem, you know, but they're there for a reason. And so it's really about unpacking that and saying, like, you know, what has led you here? And, you know, what is it that you, you want from this group? And really I'm using motivational interviewing to kind of drill deeper. And then sometimes it's consultation where, you know, the individual's like, mm, I think there might be something there. You know, I might have to address it. And then you kind of go into some people where they're more like preparation, where they're actually trying to take steps to change. And then you've got your action where, you know, stage where a lot of people are actually physically wanting to practice the change that we put in place. And so maintaining motivation is trying to understand where they're at and, and trying to kind of find out what is their driving factor for the behaviour that they currently have. Mm. Uh, and where do they want to see... Where do they, first of all, where do they see themselves going? And the other is, where do they want to go? Uh, so I think it's really about my role to maintain motivation is to kind of, uh, I, I guess, curb the conversation to keep it moving uh, to try and get that behaviour change component. Mm. So that leads to me to the question, if people are coming in and they're not ready, um, mm-hmm. what, where have, they, have, have people been referred there or do people find you online? What, how do most people find Smart Recovery? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's different channels. Um, you know, some people might be looking for addiction support online and, you know, Smart Recovery, they, they might show up and they just, you know, apply for a meeting or look up in their local area where there's a meeting. The other one is where people who have, you know, been through the court process and legal complexities and that they might be recommended to attend Smart through their lawyer or the judge. Um, some people have a friend recommend it. So it, it's really quite broad uh, in terms of the scope mm. uh, in, in people and, and what we get mm. uh, from a weekly meeting. Okay. And so at the end of the meeting, if anyone is listening that wants to contact Smart Recovery, we'll uh, read out their um, details. But, of course, if you have to go right now, you can just Google them. Okay, so now uh, somebody's got to the point where um, they're they're wanting to change, but they're experiencing these urges to go back to the the behaviour that's troubling them. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with yeah. that one? Yeah, so you know, like the way I see the um, smart recovery stages, or the you know the the four points, is really about a phasic model in the sense that you can always go back and forward depending on where the person is, uh, and so you know. Let's say they've got the motivation to change, and they are. They're starting to talk about change talk, right? And this is what I call a change talk. You're starting to see, like, I do want to do this. And you're starting to see those key words pop out from a person. And then it's about really saying, well, all right, if you're there, let, let, you know, here we go into more about the coping with urges and the tools of change, right? So coping with the urges is really about, look, you know, teaching them refusal skills, uh, interpersonal effectiveness strategies of you know how to refuse a drink or you know how to curve temptation from the environment. Uh, it's really about surfing the urge as well. Some of the tools that we use because when you're in addiction, the urge is more of an emotional impulse that's quite strong. And so what we want to really do is try and facilitate a conversation that can teach uh, participants or you know people coming to the space of how to be you know how to how to get used to or tolerate the urge and not make the situation worse or mm. you know, not make the situation um, to the point where, you know, they're going back to the old behaviour. And they might do that, but it's always about saying, well, okay, where are you at now? And, you know, let's, let's go back to the plan. Mm. So you concrete things like, you know, just pause and don't act on it. 
Absolutely, yeah. We had like urge surfing in, in you know, when we covered with urges. Um, you know, we had an urge walk, which is one of my favorite tools. I love the urge walk. I think, <laughs> you know, me being a behavioral therapist, you know, really looking at what the person's pattern of behavior from day to day and when they get the urges, because urges isn't something just, you know, from that, that individual has. An urge is something that's influenced from the environment, their friends, their job, it could be stress, mm -hmm. lack of nutrition, all sort of factors that may come into it. And so identifying those points or helping the individual put that plan to place so they can identify the points is quite useful and powerful. Mm. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. So is it, does it tend to be a sort of a linear thing then that somebody's sort of got the motivation, they've got some some tools to manage the urges and then they're starting to move on to wider problems? Is, is that how it sort of works? Yeah, yeah, it can. I mean, sometimes you might find that person maintains motivation, they get the motivation, then they go to, you know, cope with urges. But then, you know, something along might, might throw them off a little bit and then, you know, they're going back to kind of maintain the motivation. So, you know, you, you start to really look at where they are. So they might go back and forward sometimes until they have enough skill set and capacity uh, to move to, you know, solving problems. Um, the way I look at it, I guess, you know, is that, you know, you, to cope with urges, yes, you're using distress tolerance and, and you're using tolerance skills to really build that. But, you know, using tolerance skills alone doesn't always solve or give you a life worth living sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you usually do is that we, we teach coping with urges, but we also want to teach problem-solving right, as, as a concept yes. and as a tool as well, because solving problems in our life is crucial because you can't, you know, and this comes from my, you know, my experience as a clinician, right, you can't build a life worth living just by distracting or, you know, avoiding the urges or writing that. So you've also got to, you know, you know, manage and cope with the urges where you can and do what you can. Uh, to get past that and then move towards problem solving when you can as well. And so you kind of want to maintain both. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, of course, the, everybody in the, the group might be at a different stage on that day, so that's where you're checking in with each individual member, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's the beauty of it because, you know, if someone's in maintaining motivation or, like, even thinking about it, why should I change? And then they're seeing someone who has shifted and they're like, yeah, you know, I've changed and this has been great. That actually builds motivation itself, and mm. so it's really about pointing that process and using the group uh, to kind of highlight the message of that, that sort of goal that individual wants to meet, and you know, creating a new narrative for addiction that it's, it is possible to move forward, it is possible to have a life that you want, and that is worth living, mm. right? Um, and it's not about perfection, but it's about being more effective, and you know, just having, I guess, that sort of um, satisfaction of whatever it is that you're looking for. Yep. Okay, I was. Uh, it's interesting to hear you saying you had a favourite tool, and it was about um, the urger or something. I didn't quite catch the it. Urge one, yeah, the yeah. urge one. I have many favourite tools, right? So right. Think, Can you tell I us? Tell us some. Though. Tell us some. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the urge one is fantastic. You've also got you know refusing skills where we, you know sometimes we do a role play with participants of you know getting them to kind of enact what might happen in a conversation. Mm. And what you might find is that a lot of people, when they do refusal skills or they're practicing it, they, they might not be as assertive 
and so, you know, getting them to kind of practice on their own in the mirror, um, you know, putting that routine of practice in their daily life, that's actually really powerful because what we what they're starting to do is imagining themselves in a scenario where they might be tempted by, you know, the drug of choice or they might be tempted by the addictive behavior and potential for it. And so it's really about building up that resilience, saying, you know, no, actually, that's, that's not what I want to do. Mm. Um, and the other thing, coping with urges, is we have what's called, um, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis, which I absolutely love. And the cost-benefit analysis is really about, you know, if I, if I engage in this urge, what is the benefit for me? Because I think it's so important to really drill down and say, well, what is the function of my behavior when I engage in an addictive pattern or when I'm using substances? What does it do for me? Because building insight around that is so crucial. And then looking at the negatives about that as well and, you know, um, unpacking that more as well. So, you know, if I use, it might be a short-term relief. However, in the long term, it's creating a lot of disruptions in my own personal life. And so what you then do from a CBA or cost-benefit analysis tool, you might go down and say, well, what is the behavior that I want to replace it with? So, you know, someone might be having, you know, 10 drinks a day. They might want to reduce it to five. And so what would be the benefit then of reducing it to five? You know, mm. so more of a harm minimization approach as well mm. we can kind of factor into, which is awesome. So you're really creating space around that, that urge, aren't you? So the person's got more freedom to um, act or not act or, you know, respond Absolutely, and not yeah. react or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, not, you know, when we talk about abstinence, not everyone is going to be ready to kind of take that or, or even do it. Someone's not even safe to do full-on abstinence based on a person's history or where they're at. Mm. So, you know, approaching addiction from a harm minimization perspective too is really important. Mm. Uh, and, and having that scope to be able to kind of support that in smart is very powerful. Um, and, you know, not, one is not right over the other. It's more about where that person is and what fits them in their, in their, their own life. Mm. Again, they're the expert. They have to choose what they would like to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, any other, before we move on, any other favorite tools? Yeah, so you've also got like, you know, uh, the ABCs, right? Like the, activate, the activating event of, you know, of what happened, you know. So sometimes events don't cause pain themselves. If events, you know, if I, if I spill coffee on my shirt, that doesn't impact my emotion directly. But if I spill coffee on my shirt and then I say, oh, my goodness, my shirt, my favorite shirt just got ruined. I'm, I'm just a mess. I'm a cop. You know, then you start to feel bad and then that impacts your emotion, which directly impacts how you're going to behave. And so maybe if I'm on the way to work, I might go into work feeling really agitated and, and angry because I spill coffee on my shirt, which then impacts my direct behavior with clients or, you know, mm. with my colleagues. So, you know, the ABC tool uh, is such a great tool to use to get participants to kind of start reflecting on, you know, how their behavior is separate from their thoughts and emotions mm. or beliefs. Right. Um, well, they sound like great tools. Um, now, before we go to another break, without naming names, could you describe, say, somebody's recovery, or like a, a hypothetical person or a real person that you can pretend is hypothetical? <laughs> yeah, no, look, I'm happy to share a, a story without naming names, of course, you know. <laughs> but I do remember a, um, a particular client, you know, came into to uh, when I first started the group. Uh, the, the groups that I'm running, uh, came in and, uh, you know, I, I worked with this individual every week because they just kept coming back to the, you know, to the group. Uh, and when they first started, you know, they, there was no sort of, uh, there was insight, of course, but there wasn't sort of 
you know, the understanding of why they had the addiction itself uh, started to shift a lot because there was a lot of blame to oneself. Like, I caused this, I did this, I, it was me. And then, we, you know, the more weeks you joined in, and they joined in, right, the more weeks they did, uh, it started to become more flexible in their approach to thinking. And, you know, towards the end, they're like, oh, my goodness, actually, my addiction was just a coping mechanism, you know, for the other things that were going on in my life. Mm. And it was a way to distract myself because that felt so much better than, you know, than um, actually just dealing with the pain. Uh, and maybe at that point, I didn't have enough tools to deal with the pain. And so that was the only way I could cope in the best way I knew how to. Uh, and, and, you know, it's around building that insight. And then, you know, what we say as well is that, you know, yes, you know, you were doing probably the best you can. And, you know, doing that, you now realize that, you know, there were a lot of consequences in your life that, you know, that occurred because of that behavior in which now you realize and, you know, it's the whole process of kind of acceptance and change going back and forth. Like, I accept where I am now because of my past. And I also, you know, want to change as well and keep keep building on that momentum. Uh, and so, you know, this person develops such great insight afterwards. And there's, there's numerous cases, um, you know, of people I've, I've worked with over the last couple of, I guess, years or months, um, you know, just to see that change is really powerful. And I think it just drives my passion for the work because mm-hmm. when you see people shift, it's, it's very rewarding. Mm, I can understand that. Um, okay, let's take another break uh, with another Paul Kelly song. We're sort of featuring Paul Kelly here today. And he, the next song is called Heavy Thing. And uh, then we'll be right back with Joseph after that. Thank you.
This is a Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we're talking today with Joseph Abdo about the smart recovery approach to helping people with addictive behaviours. Um, welcome back, Joseph. Thanks, Anne. Good to be back. Now, um, I am interested to know, does smart recovery also have help to, uh, off, to offer to people struggling with disorders that I don't normally think of as addictions but maybe they are and maybe you can cast light on this I'm thinking of OCD anorexia nervosa those sort of things yeah absolutely um I I guess what I can start off by saying is that they are a little bit different particularly when you're looking at OCD and um you know uh you know eating disorder from the restrictive kind uh you know what they have is more of a compulsion uh and so a compulsion is a little bit different because a compulsion is kind of perceived as a need sometimes. Uh, you know, it's like the brain's wiring to a need something. Where addiction is more of a, it's more of an impulse, to, to like a want. Uh, but it's more complex than that because, you know, OCD does definitely have an addictive, can have an addictive side to it as well. Um, however, it's not so much of an addiction, but it can have, there are behaviours that a person can engage in that can become addictions. And so you, what you get is comorbidity. Um, whether smart has um, capacity to engage, uh, you know, you know, transdiagnostic um, purposes like OCD, absolutely, I think there is scope to do that. I think it just matters more about what sort of behaviour change the individual is willing to work on because at the end of the day, we're not so much focused on, you know, labels or diagnostics. We're more focused on behaviour. And so if there's a behaviour that someone, say, with OCD or an eating disorder would like to change, it's really about being very specific to it uh, and defining it and kind of doing a behaviour change plan to work with it. So in that sense, in, in, in saying that, I, absolutely, I think there's a great opportunity for it. But again, you know, what works for one person, it, it's always going to be different. Mm. So that's why smart recovery uh, tends not to be using the words addiction as much as, say, the 12-step groups, but they're more inclined just to say problem behaviour. Absolutely, problem behaviour, uh, coping mechanisms. But, yeah, absolutely. And coping behaviour is really anything a person considers uh, a hindrance in their life mm. or could be causing a bit of, you know, a, a bit of challenges for that individual. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, again, it's not always identified directly by that individual, but, it, you know, it's about building inside around that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a story about another hypothetical person, say, that, that finds it trouble, uh, difficult to um, gain that insight? And, and also I'm interested in how, as a facilitator, you manage your own, if there is any, frustration about things like that. Frustration as in people not... You know, people not 
developing insight. Yeah, that. like say the whole the whole group can see it, <laughs> but they can't or something. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, I, I guess as a facilitator and, you know, as a clinician myself, I, I think I'm, I, my expectation from the client is that there is no expectation. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have an expectation because if I have an expectation, I'm being judgmental and that's the worst thing you can do. So it's really about developing that empathy. And so, you know, there are reasons why someone might not shift or someone might change, you know, beyond my own knowledge of why, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's always about having that curiosity to be able to say like, oh my goodness, okay, this is not working for you. And I think, you know, shifting shifting the conversation to say, does that person want to change or not to, you know, is what we're doing actually working for that individual, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that's a bigger question here about interventions and support. And what I really like about SMART is that, again, we're not, we're not, it, it's evidence based. It comes from a cognitive behavioral therapy background in the sense that you, you can start breaking down the, 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 you know, the connections of that individual of how their thoughts have impacted their emotions and how then that changes their behavior. Mm. And the beauty about that, you know, if, if say someone is in the group and they're like, no, I don't want to change just here, you know. That's fine. I'm, that's all right, you know. Because most of the time, what you'll start to see, you know, because I get a lot of people coming in and they're like, yep, um, I don't, I, you know, I'm just here because court told me. So I'm like, well, that's, that's fine. You know, do you think they're right about that? You know, just yeah. having that conversation. Just start like, somewhere. Yeah, that's right, you know. And, you, you know, it's not about frustration. It's about building rapport. You know, it's all mm. about rapport building and, you know, and you know what I usually what usually happens is it's a spark because sometimes those people tend to be they just keep coming back even <laughs> because they actually realise like actually hang on there's something genuinely good in this that I'm actually getting from it you know but as opposed to me saying oh my god why aren't you changing or why aren't you shifting <laughs> it's gonna scare them off right it's like mm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this I'm so uncomfortable. So, you know, it's really holding space and it's about being very empathetic because, mm. again, you know, they're the expert on themselves. Like, that's, you know, they know themselves more than I know them. Um, and, and that's what we hold because at, from a smart perspective, we're really about facilitating and moving the conversation um, and, and making sure that they can take something home. Mm-hmm. It's not about us directly providing intervention directly in their life. It's, it's about them, but that's why we say self-managed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about them taking what they want and putting it in their life. So we're not telling people what to do. You never want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, some of, some people in the group, their families are telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? And and that's, you know, that just creates more more shoving and, and more shoving and, and, you know, distance away from, you know, connection with people to more going and coping with, you know, the addiction itself or the problem behavior. You know, moves you closer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite authors always says is, you know, the, the opposite of addiction isn't being sober. The opposite of addiction is connection. Oh, um, wow. there's, some, there's some powerful truth in that is that, you know, as humans, we have this fundamental need to connect with places, things, and, and, and bonds. Bonds keep us grounded. And a lot of people, when they develop problem behaviors, whether it's addiction, whether it's a compulsion, whatever, right? There's usually something in that process that they're probably not getting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, oh, I had a question there. It's just gone out of my mind. I was so um, interested in what you were saying. Oh, yes, I was thinking of um, people who have you ever facilitated a friends and family meeting? Because I would imagine the uh, the behaviour that those people would be wanting to stop, perhaps 
would or, or gain insight into how they're treating that yes. person. Yep. Yes, I am Talk so about glad that. you asked that question. I am so glad, and that you asked that question because a lot of the times, while we're treating someone with the problem behaviour, or we're working with the problem behaviour, we we tend to sometimes forget about their social network. You know, the friends and families that are supporting them or in their lives, or mm. you know, are part of that sort of cycle or network. Uh, and, and so, you know, friends and family. A lot of the time, it's this sort of concept of, oh, my goodness, you know, if it's a parent, I, you know, I fail as a parent, and there's all this sort of self-judgment about what it means, you know, for someone to have a problem behavior, mm. you know, whatever it is. And, 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 you know, it's about saying, well, you know, there are things in your life that you can control, and there are things that you just you just can't control. But, you know, you're not going to be any sort of benefit if, you know, you're not rested and you're not looking after yourself. So, you know, for friends and family, it's really about creating awareness that, you know, you're not just a carer, you're you're a human being yourself. And, you know, in the cliched, <laughs> I think it's cliched now, but in, in the saying that, you know, you've got to put your oxygen mask mm. on when yep. you're trying to support someone, yep. I think that's a real metaphor, you know. Um, and sometimes, you know, when the, when the rubber hits the road and things get tough, you know, you, you want to be, at, you know, at rested. You want to be, you know, looking after yourself so that you are able to cope with a crisis coming up or whatnot. Because if you're not rested and you you, you are emotionally vulnerable, then, you know, the crisis is just going to spiral even worse. So it's really about capacity building for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we talk about the locus control and, and, you know, locus control is like having the conversation with them of what can they control and what is outside of their control. Uh, and really, really getting, you know, to that insight. And, you know, friends and family, some people might come in and be like, what do I have to change, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, and that's, that's, I think that's a fair question, but I think, you know, it's not about changing or not. It's about sort of moving towards, um, you know, acknowledging that, yes, you might have not caused the problem or, you know, whatever the problem is that you're understanding. And, and a lot of the times it's about, developing more insight around, you know, what they're actually speaking to. Uh, because a lot of the times it's sort of guilt and shame of mm-hmm. what has happened to their significant other or loved one. Yep. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of like sometimes they're going into, you know, this survival mode of like, I need to fix things, yep. but I don't know how. Yep. Um, so, you know, family and friends is such a great model that runs over eight weeks. Um, you know, for um, people who are interested in the, pro- you know, signing up for the course, but you know, it, it runs over eight weeks and it covers different aspects for family and friends that they may experience in the course of looking after a loved one. Mm. That's great that you've put that message out there. Um, we've got one minute left, Joseph, and I thought you might like to leave us with so all of us whether we're dealing uh, with our own compulsive behaviours or whether we're worried about someone else's. What sort of self-care should we implement today? Well, I, I really would like to normalise this, that, you know, anyone can be addicted to anything. Anyone can have a problem behaviour. It's very normalised. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a part of self-care is, is saying like it is what it is and, and trying to kind of remove judgments of what you think you are or is, mm-hmm. right? So that's not hypothesising or trying to catastrophize, but really, um, you know, doing the small things that you can in a day, you know, like... Go, Go get your nails done. Go get your hair done. Go mm-hmm. for a walk. Go. And it's not just going for a walk that will fix things, but it's more about, you know, doing something that you can actually connect with and enjoy. And it doesn't mean doing the same thing again and again, but maybe it's about having a conversation with yourself and doing something completely different that mm. you haven't done in a while uh, to change up the mundane patterns 
mm-hmm. of what we're going through. And self-care looks very different for different people. That's and true. So really having the conversation of what has worked for you or what works for you and just, you know, going and really exploring that is so important. Yep. Okay. All right, everyone out there, find out what uh, works for you and go and uh, look after yourself a little bit today. Um, thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you so much. That's all about all we've got uh, time for today. So I'd like to thank Joseph for sharing his Smart Recovery Australia knowledge with us. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Anne. And uh, for those listening, feel free to check out our website, um, smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au. Um, and, you know, uh, feel free to, if you need support, feel free to jump on uh, and subscribe to our meeting or look at your local meetings. Mm-hmm. So you've got Zoom meetings? Yes. Cool. Absolutely. Okay, uh, to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, as Joseph said, I'll just give you that website again, uh, smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au. That'll give you details of meetings, uh, contact information and uh, Zoom meetings too, I think. Or you yes. can yep, call them directly on um, 02 9373 5100. Uh, Next week, we will be joined by another guest uh, with experience in the field of uh, difficult behaviours. Hopefully, it's going to be a person who works with young people. Um, So we're just working on that, about uh, teeing that up at the moment. So hopefully, that will be the focus next week. Uh, Coming up next on 3CR, we have Balamois, the Spirit of Wa, hosted by Uncle Taujim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Um, thanks for listening. Remember, we've got the Radiothon on. You can donate now on 94198377. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.